Hello, and welcome to the Wisdom Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Nieves, Vice President of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the impact of the rise of India on the geopolitical balance of power, how this affects the United States' national security interests, and what policymakers in Washington can do to respond to the risks and opportunities presented by this situation. Turning our attention stateside, we will also be discussing the policies and platform of Libertarian candidate for Governor of Texas, Mark Tippetts. Should he be elected, his policies would represent a major departure from the mainstream political ideology of the two-party system. However, with long odds for victory, it's worth discussing whether or not the Libertarian Party is even viable. Join us for an important discussion about the future of politics and policy in the United States, so that way we may enlighten our understanding of the issues affecting all of us, our future, our country, and our world. Welcome to the Wisdom Factory Podcast. We're starting off 2018's fall semester with something really exciting. Uh, this is Preston Nieves, the Vice President of the Wisdom Factory. With me, I have Jordan Villanueva, the Jordan President Villanueva. of the Wisdom Factory. And then guys. Nicholas Flores, a member of the Wisdom Factory, is making his Nicholas debut. First debut. first debut on our podcast. And what we're going to be talking about today are two topics. Um, first of all, we're going to be talking about the strategic balance between the United States and other great powers particularly when it comes to the role of India in the United States-Russia and United States-China relations. We've talked about great power relations before. I know Jordan and I have had some wonderful discussions about that, even if we're not always on the same side check of the check debate. Check the last podcast, guys. Yeah, check the last podcast. And we're going to be sort of revisiting some of these things from a different perspective. The second issue in today's podcast is going to center around domestic politics. We're going to talk about libertarianism, specifically the par- party platform of Mark Tippett, the libertarian candidate candidate for governor of Texas, who we recently had the pleasure of meeting and having a town hall with at the Wisdom Factory's latest event. And put the bumper on my chest. Yeah, see, the bumper sticker is on Nick's chest right now. So, guys, right now, uh, we know you guys don't got video feed of this, but I'm looking at Nick. He's got a Mark Tippett's Libertarian for Governor sticker right on his chest. Let's talk about my favorite hill figure. Before we get into international... Because, wait, 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 let's, let's make podcast breaking news. Because you have this on your chest, are you actually endorsing Mark Tippett's, or are you just trying to be? Well, funny? the Wisdom Factory can't endorse candidates because mm-hmm. no, we're nonpartisan, but, but, he, but he could. He a little could. bit of both, but slight more of a no because someone plastered it onto my ch- favorite T-shirt. A little bit of both, but no. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Preston, so we were going to continue. We were going to start with this sort of uh, discussion that we were having about India. Yes. And l- let me just give you guys a little bit of the background on this. So we were talking about United States um, geopolitical stance uh, and our relationship with Soviet Russia and Communist China. And Preston well, makes, Soviet Preston Russia, makes yeah, a, yeah. he makes a valid point that we did a lot of things to nurture China, to grow China. We gave them a lot of economic incentives, a lot of economic. Um, what would you call them, Preston? You would um, sort of. 
beneficial Benefi- agreements yeah. beneficial agreements that sort of turn that allowed China to experience the massive growth that they have been experiencing year on year which has then turned it in 2018 into a great economic power that in many economic metrics has surpassed the United States and because they've surpassed us they've become a great geopolitical yes. enemy so we have basically created this enemy so basically, due basically to our that, policies back in yeah, the day the, the, how the, does that relate to India so here, here's sort of the conclusion we've come to, and I'll, I'll bring it back to India. So Jordan and I, and we're not going to argue about this right now. Maybe we can later. But uh, Jordan and I ha- have some opposing views on which country is the largest threat to the United States hegemony. I believe it's, it's Russia. I believe it's China. It's Russia. It's China. But uh, what the conclusion we sort of came to a consensus between the three of us is that the answer is more complicated than this one or another. And that the, the, the statement that seemed to be the most agreeable out of any single statement that we uttered was this that militarily Russia is the biggest threat, but economically and politically it's China. And that the United States needs to adapt its policy based on what the deciding factors of a conflict are. Conflicts dependent on military outcomes should center around countering Russia, but conflicts centered around economic or political outcomes should focus on countering China. But here's where India comes in. India is the wild card because they have an economy that rivals China's, that rivals the United States, but they have a lot more development potential. Unlike China, they don't have a massive aging population. They have a much younger population. Uh, But on the flip side, they're also a democratic country. China's government has hated with a seething passion the United States from the very beginning of its inception. India, not so much. It's a democratic country. But at the same time, if the United States is considered about, or is, is concerned about maintaining hegemony, India's power could still be a long-term concern. And one of the things that Jordan mentioned was that we don't want to have the same mistake with India that we did with China. One of the reasons why the United States nurtured China is because we were afraid of the Soviet Union and we didn't realize what China would become. We don't want to do the same thing with India because India seems to have a lot of potential. Right. So basically, if if we uh, like we have it. So right now we're in that period of time where basically I would calculate it to where China was maybe in 85, 86. So India right now is still had there's a lot of third world aspects about it. They don't really have their there's a lot of bureaucratic problems. They don't have their house in order. They can't implement the policies that they need to operate in. They don't have a, a, a hugely dynamic economy like like the Chinese might have had. I don't think what are they fourth in GDP right now? Uh, I think somewhere fourth around there. GDP. I can't remember the right their, exact their number. Their military I'll look it up. their military is not formidable they're not no, they're, they're the military not is five. so they're, they're, their military is formidable not as much as russia's or china's but still a lot more than a lot of people give them not credit even for. more than the saudi arabia or Pakistan. no no, no. okay india not only do they have nuclear weapons but they actually so here's the funny part and this is one of the reasons why it's a wild card india has a close relationship with russia and what that means is they have access to Russian technological know-how, but because they have a bigger economy, unlike Russia, they can actually afford to buy the weapons that they produce in large number. So there's a lot of Russian missile technology, such as you know, like the, I think it's the, not, uh, the Zircon and the Brahmos, yeah. the S four hundred, the S four hundred. There's a lot of missiles. The Su thirty five. There's a lot of missiles and planes that were developed either by Russia there's, or jointly between Russia and India, right. where India has actually been able to adopt them a lot earlier because they can actually afford them. Now, given by and large, I would agree that the Russian military is still overall more formidable than India's. Yes. But to say that... We have the fact checked in. So what rank is India's economy? 
Seven. It seven. says here, seven. according to the World hey, Atlas, lucky India seven. has a GDP of $2.27 trillion There we go. Cap. Boom. Thank you for giving me that number. So right now their GDP is $2.27 trillion. The United States is roughly, what, $19 trillion, close to $20 trillion, $18 trillion? About $20. Somewhere in that, somewhere in that ballpark. Wait, there, so are you sure is that as we, of now? Because I thought their economy was way bigger than that. We have them. I think it's $2 trillion. I think that's fair to say. Oh, oh, but did it have, did have, have a date on it? Short, to be so Because sure. I, I remember seeing a lot more. Because that, that's like closer to Russia's economy, in which case it's kind of strange. I don't know. Because India, India legit is buying more weapons than Russia and, and is able to procure the new systems in a larger number. Mm-hmm. But if they have the same size economy, that's strange. While he's working on that, uh, it could be two point trillion, but I know dang sure it ain't above four trillion in any any way you're gonna look at it. So, but the point is that where India is at right now is basically there. We don't see them as a geopolitical threat because their economy isn't really what China's is, or it's not what. Well, I guess China would be the only example we have right now. Well, but there's or, or no the way United, that, that or the United there, States, there, and I think I think there's no hold on, President. So there, there's no real way that we see India as a threat in the way that we see our two main threats, which is China and Russia. But that being said, we didn't see China as the threat that we do today. Hold on, do we have that number? I got a new one. I got a new one. It says here, according to the International Monetary Fund of 2017, okay, India at GDP nominal. Two point six eleven trillion, which is basically six. So, so look up. He's the look, look, up look up Russia's. I kind of so, want to know like the. So it's a two point seven trillion dollar economy. So, like I was saying, you look at Russia. I mean, India today. I mean, if you looked at China, like in the eighties, you wouldn't see them as a geo, as the geopolitical threat that they are now. So it's about sort of extrapolating what India is going to be in the future. Do we want to be having this conversation in 2030 and saying, you know what, in 2018 we could have did something about India's rise and we could yeah. have prevented them because now they're too strong. They have a stronger population. They have they have more innovation than us. They're a stronger democratic country than we are, so they're able to out-innovate us. And we have to sit back and take orders from India because they're a stronger geopolitical power so because they own the Indian continent. So that basically what we're trying to say is that do we need to reevaluate the way that we treat India given the sort of um, the knowledge that they could potentially be a China in the next 15 years and if so do we need to sort of enact policies that sort of are containing India's growth and India's potential to be the adversary that we don't want to create because we can create or we the policies that the United States enacts towards India could either create the their their super powerful economy or it can stifle this super powerful economy because basically we can control the amount of uh, what, how can we control their economy, person? So there's um, a few options that we have, but the first thing I would want to point out is that how you look at this really depends on. Your, the theory of international relations that you believe is most accurate. If you're a liberal, you probably don't care about any of this stuff because you like you know a lot of liberal for- and I don't mean like liberal in terms of Democrat. That's a different thing. But like liberal in terms of foreign policy. That's you know just pure diplomacy and cooperation, and that a lot of them like China. Uh, but this is more of like a constructivism versus realism debate. If we're conceding that China is dangerous, that I think or and same thing with India because India, if you look at it from a constructivist perspective, there's not really anything to be afraid of with India. Uh, because India is a democratic country. They have similar ideas 
ideas of what the world order should look like as the United States. So if that's your primary concern, what should world order look like? Do we want democratic or autocratic powers and in, in, uh, countries right. in power? It doesn't matter. Where India is potentially dangerous is if you look at things from a realist perspective. Uh, if you focus on power and if you want the United States to maintain its status as a top power and prevent other countries from being able to interfere with its interests, that is where India could be extremely dangerous. Now, to constrain their economy, one of the key things has to do with how we arrange our trade deals. I know uh, in one of our other conversations, like I think like an hour or so ago, you had mentioned that uh, India has some one-sided tariffs with us too. Um, that that was part of the problem with China, is that the United States accepted trade deals that were stacked heavily in China's favor, often deliberately, um, and that that allowed China to develop strength and self-sufficiency simultaneously, which is a very dangerous combination. With India, I think one one key thing to controlling India's economy for the United States would be to promote free markets. And here's why I say that, because some people have argued with China that maybe we should just cut off trade entirely. And, I, and I'm sort of of that position to an extent, but with India it's a little bit different, because what it is is that we need India's help to counter China right now. The danger is that they become strong later. So basically if we were to promote a more of a free market relationship, we're able to keep them on our side because their economy is growing, but we limit their ability to to be self-sufficient because they're not going to be able to have simultaneous comparative advantages with us and everything because of tariffs and that's going to maintain the united states ability to counter um, any kind of effort that they make to undermine our influence with sanctions as long as they're interdependent with the rest of the world but, but, it's Preston, going to be but let me stop you right there this whole point of this conversation is preventing the mistake that we made with china what you're saying now could be applied to China in when Soviet Union was a threat. We need China because we have to, we need China in the short term because we have to counter. But, but the that's, Union. that's precisely where no, I'm. No, 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 but that's now, precisely now where I'm coming from. We because India because we have to counter China. No, you're, trying, you're making the same mistake no, no. twice right before us. But, but the policy I'm advocating for is very different from what we did with China because with China we made no attempt to try to have a fair t trade deal. With China we made no attempt to try to put ourselves into a situation where if China got out of control, they would be interconnected and that we could retaliate with them. We never made a deliberate effort to protect our industrial capacity. Vis-a-vis -vis China, but that if we were you, if we were to able, trying, what concessions are you going to give India in order for them to play ball when it comes time to China? Well, this is a major opportunity for the United States because of the fact that India is so afraid of China. We might not really have to give any in terms of trade. We could the only concession we really would need to give potentially is security, helping protect India. And with the United States military, that's something we're prepared to do. That India and China, China has already threatened India with nuclear war. Things have gotten extremely serious between these two countries, especially because of their border disputes and that as a result of that forming an alliance with India would be something that India views as it's within it, in its advantage inherently, and that because of that, because the United States would be able to assist India so much in protecting it, we could get leverage in trade disputes. In fact, heck, we could even potentially forget free trade. We could try to have a non-reciprocal relationship in our favor for them, basically them paying us for our protection. All right, but then there's also this you also have to consider as another reason that we can use as an advantage when it comes to diplomatic relations with the Indians for our side against the Chinese. And that would be the Chinese One Belt, One Road initiative Ooh. on their economic corridor Ooh. with Yeah, Pakistan, that's a big factor. Which is also a nuclear power just across a freaking neighbor with India. And it's not just them. We also have to consider their One Belt, One Road initiative throughout the maritime trade network, which just also 
is connected along the coastline of India. Yeah. Yeah, that is a big factor because the One Belt, One Road initiative is essential for China's ability to gain long-term geopolitical influence. Because even though China right now, economically, they're the strongest country in the world. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about the ability to project that economic influence abroad, or and if you're talking about the ability to have a military presence abroad, that is where China falls a little bit behind the United States. Actually, a lot behind the United States in the case of the military influence abroad. And that the One Belt, One Road initiative does two things. The first is that it expands China's access to other countries' markets. But the second is that because of their predatory lending policies, it yep. allows China to establish military bases. Because basically, China will loan an amount of money that mm -hmm. they know a country cannot pay. And then what will happen is that when the country defaults on the payment, China will forgive the debt in exchange for a military base. I mean, we already see examples of this, one in Pakistan and the other one in Sri Lanka. The one in Pakistan, last time I checked, it was several decades of a lease of the port. Last time I checked, it was somewhere between 40 to 50 year lease. Now the one in Sri Lanka, it was a 99 year lease. Now mind you, the one in Sri Lanka and in Pakistan, right now there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of trade going on. There's barely anything. And if you look it up, there's almost no cargo ships that go there. Right. But that's only the beginning. It's but, only been just fixed. So we'll have to see I what feel happens. Like, I feel like we're, we're getting sort of off topic here. We're talking about the Belt and Road in Initiative and how that benefits China. This specifically is about countering India. But it is it is yes, relevant it, to, it, it is it is relevant India. to the strategic well, balance because one, 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 of the things, one of the things that needs to be considered there's two things that need to be considered. Not only China versus India. Because you're making me want to go into my, my counter Russia's Belt and Road Initiative. But also, policy. but also, and you mean China's Belt and Road Initiative. But okay. Yeah. But but, yeah. The th but the thing is, is what that one, th Russia? one, Russia. Yeah. one oh, thing that needs to be considered is not only China versus India, but also long term versus short term. And I think this is where the United States oftentimes makes bad judgment. Is mm -hmm. that like with, with China, is that we were, we, we had short term thinking that, uh, that we were not willing to consider what China could eventually become. We were only concerned about what would happen happen within the term of the president and the congressmen that were there at that time. Well, the whole point of this conversation is avoiding the same mistake with India. And because I, I think I think we're all in agreement here that in the short term, India is not as dangerous as China or Russia. Mm -hmm. But but in the long term, they definitely could be potentially more dangerous than either. Well, well you but, could say yes, that it would be that <clears throat> dangerous. But then you'd also have to consider this, that both India and America, they will probably stick more with short term policies strictly by the fact that they're democracies yep. versus China, because with China, it's more authoritarian. They're closer to the older governments that used to exist, for instance, like monarchies or empires, where if they had one goal, they could stick to it, no problem. There was a book However, I, with yeah. a democracy, for the people that are elected mm -hmm. to stay in power, they have to get the public, the popular vote, basically, or public opinion, yeah. to keep them in power. And with that, people are more short-sighted. They have short attention spans. When you do that, it's much harder to continue with the long-range plan unless you know there is an enemy out there that we all agree on. That's a very valid point. Um, and, and, I mean, you're totally right that there's a fundamental difference in the long-term strategies that you see with democracies versus sort of more authoritarian governments like you see in Russia and China. That's why they're able to implement these 5- and 10-year, 20-year plans. Mm -hmm. And we just simply could not do that because we implement 1-year, 6-month plans. You know, We can barely we, do a 5. We, we, we don't have, <laughs> yeah. have, have long-term planning. It's not built into Bullet our Kennedy. system. We choose to go to the moon before. 
before long, this decade is out. Long-term yeah. planning entails sacrifices in the short term, and in democracies, you rare, rarely, mm. rarely ever see that because it costs you political capital. But that being said, I want to sort of talk about sort of let's look at this because a lot of time when we have these discussions, we get boggled down and looking at this from an American gun ho perspective. Mm. We need to look at this from an Indian perspective. What's in India's best interest to do? We need to calculate it from that perspective. I think it's at least important to entertain why what does India gain from being uh, sort of aligning its interest with with America versus Russia and India. And and I would say that the only two big things that countries like India would need to follow is a security interest and an economic interest. They're a democracy, they must be safe and protect their integrity, and they must have jobs and they must ensure that their growing population is fed and that they have, you know, an opportunity to sort of rise above the lower classes uh, and sort of become and, and achieve economic empowerment. Um, so basically, if Russia and China, which I think Russia can provide an alternative in security, and China can provide an alternative in economics. So basically, we could lose our leverage in those two main areas, and so India wouldn't need to be aligned with us as strong. They don't need us. So or, I, or they can yeah. at least afford to pivot towards these well, other, India has other countries. Options. And they've already started that precedent. And when and when they when they have the ability to do that, your ability to command India and say jump and them say how high becomes limited. And we've already seen evidence of that with this with the with with the purchasing of this S four hundred. We specific we just sanctioned China for buying Russian weapons. Yeah. India, not even a month later, buys the Su-400 saying, America, what are you going to well, do? The, the balls in your, the S-400, what are you going to do? We just bought these weapons. We're going to have them because we have strategic autonomy. They did not listen. They knew that we explicitly didn't want them so to if do we, this. So if we're going to look at this, well, if we're going to look at this from India's perspective, there's, there's sort of two things that need to be considered. One of, one of which lends itself towards kind of an optimistic American view, another not so much. So when it comes to India and what their view of the world order is like and what they would see as their benefit benefit from cooperating with the United States, I would say the one thing that really could form a lot of grounds for cooperation between India and the United States is the fact that they're both democratic countries. That India and the United States don't really have that many differences in terms of what they want the international order to look like. They are both democratic countries that believe in rule of law. That's why they're both countering China, that they believe, for example, that the ocean should be an open resource for mankind and that there should be freedom of navigation through international waters. You know, so, so India and the United States, I don't really see in terms of the way the world order is structured, them having competing goals. At least not yet. If we get into some of the long-term arguments, maybe we could make more of a compelling yeah. case for rivalry. But 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 here's the There's, thing. Here's here's the thing where India could get dangerous, and you mentioned it. Strategic autonomy, because particularly because the United States has tried to violate that strategic autonomy by uh, threatening to put them put sanctions on them as a result of them buying Russian weapons. And if if China or Russia is willing to give them strategic autonomy, uh, which is basically independence from the influence of other great powers, in an instance where the United States is not, that could pull India de facto into the influence of China and Russia. Well, there's also something you're going to have to pull up as well if we were to talk about from uh, India's uh, point of view. Let's talk about the S-400s, for instance. I mean... Think about this. In your position, would you want to buy weapons that are just as good as American and possibly cheaper? Yep. And you also get good relationships with a na with a nation that is on the same continent as you. American yeah. weapons are so overpriced. That's American something we need to come back to. They're just as good. However, they're more expensive and 
you have to go through more hurdles just to well, get a hold of them. Sometimes we pay for you to have. We give. Well, you well, can, also, we, but we, that we depends were, on the situation. And also, one, one thing, well, you mentioned about going through hurdles. That's actually a really important point because basically, what the United States does now is what the Russians used to do. So, um, an example of this. So. And I'll, I'll tie it back. Don't worry. But I just this is an important like historical fact to understand. So uh, one of the reasons why the T-72s performed so poorly in the Iraq War, the, the Saddam's T-72s, mm-hmm. is because they arguably were not even real T-72s. They were monkey models. They were the type that Russia exported to countries it didn't trust. Right. And what it is is that that was a common thing the Soviet Union did, is that they would export less capable variants of their weapon systems to other countries. The United States... More recently, and we did it then too, but like, like more now, has done something similar. That there's a lot of weapon systems. Like for example, countries can buy the F-35, but not the F-22. The F-35 is fine for low-intensity conflict. It's fine against primitive adversaries. It's fine, albeit excessively expensive, for counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. But if you want to fight an enemy's air superiority fighter, the F-35 is not designed for air combat. It's a joint strike fighter. They tried to force it into the multi-role platform, which is part of why it's so expensive. But air-to-air combat is not a strong suit. And I know, Jordan, we've had debates about the F-35. It does have better sensors, but it's not going to be able to do... Be Beyond visual range in a electronic warfare intense environment. That's why do- one of the reasons why dogfighting is still relevant. Because even though modern planes have beyond visual range capability, that when you encounter electronic warfare that messes with your sensors, sometimes you're not going to be able to shoot until they're a lot closer. But my point in bringing all this stuff up, us exporting the F-35 and not the F-22, putting like for example the Abrams tanks. A lot mm-hmm. of the Abrams tanks we exported don't have depleted uranium armor. Is because the United States has all sorts. Not only is our, our weapons much more expensive because of the defense industrial complex here, but also that we have a lot of the characteristics and capabilities that make our weapons worth having, we're not willing to offer to a lot of right. export customers. Russia, on the other hand, because they're strapped for cash, well, we're, we're the most indebted nation in human history, but because of the petrodollar, we can spend more. That might be another podcast topic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but with Russia, because they're in need of, of, of money, that they're willing to sell mm-hmm. some of their more capable weapon systems to other countries. Look at the SU-57, for example. Russia's not buying a lot of SU-57s, but the SU-57 is on sale for other countries to buy if they want them in their Air Force. The SU-57 is head and shoulders above the F-35. It's more like it's more like the F-22 in terms of capability. Uh, so that it kind of tying this back to India, that India definitely sees a benefit in buying Russian weapons because they have more options, they're able to get more capability for mm-hmm. less, and because when they actually buy the capability, Russia is willing to sell them the full variant, the full fat Russian variant of a weapon, as opposed to some monkey model that's specifically di- designed to be less capable or not selling certain weapon systems. So as an example, us not selling the F-22, but selling the F-35, that would be almost like if Russia said, we'll sell you the SU-35, but not the SU-57. Well, there's also the one where you got to consider that if you can look at, at least in recent years, American weapons, up until recently, were was, or rather is, one of the best, if not the best, until recently, best weapon systems in existence. Well, I would say they're still, the I would still even time. now, even That's now, I would, I would say, say, even now, I would say they're among the best. It's just the, the problem, there's two problems. Well, that's well, there's, the thing. That's well, what not, I'm not trying just to that, get at. Not just that, but also there, there's two things that A, they've gotten a lot more overpriced, and B, 
technological right. advantage has closed because there was a time like in the 1990s where even our downgraded export models were better than the top of the line mm -hmm. weapons that Russia or China could produce. Yes. That is no longer the case. Not, not only are Russia and China just fundamentally ahead of us in certain technologies like missiles, but even in the areas where they're behind, their best stuff is better than our export models. Now, well, I just want to uh, sort of backtrack a little bit because um, this whole theme is not making the same mistake twice with India that we made with China. And one of the things that you said, Preston, although to your credit you did clarify this, but I just want to emphasize is that you said right now you so – I guess you're sort of admitting that Russia can provide a, a security alternative to, to the United States – uh, because of the reasons you guys just talked about, and China can preserve an economic alternative, or they can present an economic alternative, because they're going to be a greater economic power, and they're right next to them, and they have this Belt and Road Initiative, where they're creating all sorts of infrastructure in the, in, in the region. But, you said, well, we still have the fact that we're both democratic, and that India has no fundamental differences in us when it comes to the worldview and to the liberal order. Now, I would say that this is not actually the case. And we shouldn't make this mistake because if you look at every single great power in the history of the world, you will see that once we didn't – China didn't have no great fundamental difference with us maybe in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, they not, did. They were not, communists they, they, we were they, not. They were communists and we were not. We had different government governments. But they didn't say we should get rid of the UN. We should get rid of the IMF. We should get rid of... Well, actually, Mao, Mao Zedong and a they, lot of the early Chinese leaders yeah. were talking about that. They just didn't have the power to actually make it But they, they, they ex Exactly. And that's what I'm trying to say. So you don't really know what a country wants to do until it's powerful enough to do what it wants to do. So we don't know what sort of designs India may have for the world order. Because if India had the power to reshape the world in its own image... It definitely would do so. It would want to do so in a way where India has as much – because countries, when they have the economic power and they have the military power, they want the geopolitical power. But you, yes. have, to, you have to force that to happen. That's what you're seeing with China right now. So China didn't have – China was a very uh, – I wouldn't say peaceful nation, but they weren't exactly aggressive geopolitically, maybe economically. But not geopolitically up until recently where we see them trying to expand in the South China Sea. We see them trying to expand in the, uh, in the um, uh, western into the countries in Asia. Now we're seeing China actually take on a more active geopolitical role. You see what they're doing in Africa. So we don't know that India is not going to do this once they become powerful yeah. enough to do so. Once they have mm -hmm. the economic resources to do it, once they have the military to sort of push their weight around – then we can see what their true vision is yeah. for the world order. Well, and that's, and we, and that's, can't, we can't say because, because they don't have the capability now that they don't have these motives. Well, that's, that's, that's definitely a very realist perspective. And given, I'm not saying to disagree because I've, I've always been a realist. So I, I definitely see the But merit. every and, country has no, done that. I definitely, no, let's, let me see. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm a realist, okay? I, I see, the, I see the, the, the validity in your argument that, that what it is that I think, and this kind of goes back to the long-term, short-term thing that I was talking about, that, that what it is is that you know, we, we, we don't want to make an argument based off of an unknown from a constructivist perspective. And, I, and I'll get into this a little bit later. From a constructivist perspective, there is no evidence in this moment. Yes, we could speculate against about, or about what might happen. Mm -hmm. But there is no evidence at this point in time 
that India just wants to completely reinvent the world order compared to what it is. I think I like Nick's example of the British Empire versus the United States. But I do agree with you on a realist framework in the sense that if we if we are going to focus on power, that gives us the liberty to speculate about what a country might do when it is in power. You could say and that, that, that that is something that right. I think that, and that's the whole point of having this you podcast. Could look essentially. At, you could look at Brazil and say Brazil has no designs in the world order. You could look at Mexico. Mexico has no designs in the world order. Japan has no designs in the world order. But if you gave that country the, the economic power to where it was the second strongest in the world or the first strongest in the world and, or the, even military, the, first and, and the military power to be the first or second strongest, yeah. I guarantee you that they would then come up with something or they would then sort of expose their true intentions. Well, and I, I think I think we need to, we need to kind of dive into why you use the word fundamental because I I, I am not under no illusion that there would be some differences between an Indian world okay. order and American yeah. world order. Mm -hmm. When I say fundamental, I mean talking about things like democracy, human rights, and rule of law. That those are all things that China is completely against. China, they, they can't stand democracy. They don't believe in rule of law. And they, and they view human rights conventions and like anti-genocide stuff as like terrible. Like they, they, they can't stand it. India, well, India is not necessarily like that, you know. So when I say fundamental, I'm talking about how the world order well, is structured. You no, said, I, when you I say said when there I, when was I, no evidence, Preston, and you want to talk about that, I'll give you one. No, but, but they, but believe I said, in, they believe in strategic autonomy. You know, I so agree with that. No, they, if they were a world power, they would probably then extend that to every country in the world who wanted to have strategic autonomy yeah. because that's something that they believe in. So therefore, every country should have strategic but that's autonomy. To be we don't believe that. Yeah, no, but here's, 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 no, 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 Jordan, Jordan, what I'm. Disagree with you, Jordan, on that because the United States has had that before. The British have had that before. Have had the British have had that so that they can protect themselves with a big ass navy. Yes, but do they allow but with other the Americans? Countries. It was the Monroe Doctrine. Yep. Okay, but we're saying, are you? So, but we. So exactly, the Monroe Doctrine is the point. We are not going to allow Mexico or Belize or El Salvador to achieve nuclear weapons and to achieve a superior navy because the United States is going to protect everyone else. That's our fundamental belief, that you don't need guns because America is going to be the world police. America. We believe that. That's why, that's why we're not going to allow China to weaponize the South China Sea because we already protect it. India, when you talk about strategic autonomy, you can't say we're going to have strategic autonomy, but you can't. That's not something that we believe in. That's something that they believe in. So if you believe in strategic autonomy for yourself, you believe in strategic autonomy for every country that's in the world. And so what is that going to lead to? Every country is going to increase their, their, their military might, their weaponry, their capacity, their military readiness, because it, that's something that India believes in, that the world is a better place when everyone can have the strong, as strong as a military as they want to have. Preston, I know you can't agree with this. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's that's actually one of the reasons why I make the distinction. But that's about, just one of the fundamental differences in our worldview that does exist. You said there's no well, evidence no, for it. That's something that, that that does exist. Well, what, I, what I'm saying uh, uh, here, here here's the thing: it's it's inevitable that countries are going to have different interests. When I say fundamental worldview in in this context. I'm talking about their views on what the laws and norms governing relations between nations should look like. So here's the thing, is that the, 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 the difference between India and the United States has more to do with how India conducts its own foreign policy mm -hmm. versus how the United States conducts its own foreign policy. That the United States and India are more or less in agreement of the idea of, for example, that international waters should be free and open to navigate to any country, right? That's something that we agree upon at least as far as what we know now and what can be proven. With China, 
That's not the case with China that they just believe that they own the South China Sea. They believe that China's interests are just inherently superior to the interests of other countries, you know, partially because of Middle Kingdom ideology, partially because of Chinese communist propaganda, you know, what have you. There's all sorts of reasons. But but the point is that, you know, and now this is not to say that there's no fundamental differences in the United States and India, because when I say there's no fundamental differences, can you get me another one, Jordan? Um, when, it, when I say there's no fundamental differences between... <laughs> Yeah, another Coke, another Coke. But um, when uh, when I say there's no fundamental differences between the United States and India, I am talking specifically about world order and international law. If you're talking about the interests of the countries and sort of what they do in terms of their own foreign policy, you know, outside of what they think other countries should do, that's where there definitely is our major differences. Because strategic autonomy with India is quite different from with the United States. Now, given the United States does have a degree of strategic autonomy in the sense that we don't want other countries interfering with us. However, we don't have strategic autonomy in the sense that we're, we don't want to just align with one side or the other. India buys weapons from the United States and Russia. And the, the only reason why they're hostile with China is because China has been really antagonizing them. That, that India is more willing to act sort of as an independent entity. Mm. And that you're absolutely right. What you were alluding to earlier, Jordan, was a multipolar world. That the idea that instead of having two great powers or one great power, you have multiple great powers. And that might be more in line with what India wants. However, that would raise a question is that you know would india really be satisfied with that in the long term because the whole point of having this conversation is whether or not india has ambitions to become the sole power well while in the short to midterm you, it might be fine with a multipolar world I, I, but I, how I, does I, how I don't does, know if you said this but th this is like going to your point this is sort of um supplementing your point that you just made and you said this before preston um so the reason why we're looking at India in this in this kind of way is because you said their their the GDP is two point one trillion. Right now, that's not that bad. That's not something wait. You said India's well India's now it's more like a six uh, almost two point seven. Two point Russia's seven. is like one point five. Right, one two point yeah. seven. But I think we're all in agreement here Poor that, Russia. that Low GDP. Russia's Rip. Russia's population is going to surpass China's. And their uh, Wait, economic you said India or Russia? Are, India. Oh, you said Russia. India's okay. population is you going to You did say Russia, but it's India. Why do I mm -hmm. keep saying Russia? What's wrong with it? It's okay. Because Russia's because population is shrinking, so that's you're okay. terrified of Russia. You talk. You I'm just scared. Talk about I Russia. have nightmares. You know, that's the thing. I think. I think Jordan's but, motto at this point could be: the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. <laughs> Well, I mean, if it's Russian women, I'm fine with them coming, but that's a different <laughs> dude, story. Brother, dude, chill out, man, okay? No, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Dude, dude all right, so we're, the Wisdom Factory is not the Wisdom Factory is not sexist. We're, no, we're not. not. Nor have we ever been sexist. Nor, no, 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 Nick no, no, was no, just making like, a joke. Yeah. Now, if you would like to see what's please, then the P.O. Box 2125. Anyway, anyway, guys, he likes women. Sue him. <laughs> Sue him. He Sorry. likes women. I Nick, like Nicholas women. Nicholas Flores. Sorry. Preston likes women, but we don't I'm having a sugar rush, guys. But, My mind is weird, okay? But we all agree that we should never objectify women. But there's yep. nothing wrong with saying that she's pretty. Yeah. Yep. Okay, oh, so let's, let's continue. Back, back to the India. Let's continue. Thing. So, well, what about Indian girls? Man, I forgot. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> all right, anyway, okay. As I was going to say, for the short and even to the mid- uh, game like let's just put it. Oh no no no! Let me clarify. Let me finish. Let me finish. That's what I was gonna say before you you did that thing. Um, so we know that that 
India's population is set to surpass China's. Not only are they going to surpass China's, they're going to be much younger. Maybe, what is it, like 20 years younger? Yeah, because China's, China's population, yeah. even, even if it's not surpassed by India's, is still going to be, going to be a older. lot older. It's going to be a lot older. And when it's older, that means that more people are leaving the labor market than is being put into the labor market. And therefore, you're going to naturally see a downward trend on economic growth. It doesn't mean that you'll see uh, lower GDP numbers, but there will be less potential for growth. Whereas in India, where you have more and more and more people entering the labor market, it's going to be a different situation. And yeah. that's why you see ec economists believe that India is going to achieve either second or first uh, economy at least by 2040. Yeah, because and even so, so you so during this conversation, we want you to keep in mind that India is going to become a the most populous and b the largest economy potentially, and that's why they that's why we're worried about them. Yeah, well, and, and I think I think I think China China knows this too, and this is actually something that could be particularly concerning uh, in terms of the security relationship because you know how earlier I had mentioned this was around the same time that the North Korea stuff was going on, which yep. is why I was overshadowed. But you know how earlier I mentioned that China had threatened to wage nuclear war against India over that border dispute. Oh yeah, here's, yeah, yeah. here's the scary thing. Wasn't that in the sixties? No, that was that was in the sixties, but also also now. But well, the sixties was against Russia, but. Here's the thing that's scary about that, because right now, China is controlled by ultra-nationalist leaders like Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. So the, the propaganda will not spin it this way. The, you know, the United States propaganda will not spin it this way. But if you look at purely aggression and ideology, the Chinese Communist Party right now is it's like it's like Nazis. It's like Hitler. It's very very no. I'm I'm serious. Well, it we is can in terms. Let, let, let me finish what I was gonna say. In terms you of you gotta clarify. In terms no, it is, and the reason why is because of the fact that there's such a basis. Uh, there's such an emphasis on cultural exceptionalism that the idea of the Middle Kingdom, which is something that is historic, that historically existed in Chinese culture, has influenced Chinese communist wrong. has has influenced Chinese Communist Party ideology. That, Everybody, Jordan, let me finish. Let me finish. They they fundamentally believe that they are superior to the rest of mankind, which is very, 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 very terrifying. I mean, if you look at it historically, they were called the Middle Kingdom. Heck, even their emperor, according to, if I remember, it was, I don't know if it was Confucian or... Uh, uh, Taoist or something. But, here, but here's but why the, I mentioned no, no, that. After you're done, I need to explain about, why I mentioned that. Yes, you, you because the thing is, another term that they used was called to... was called the mandate of heaven. Okay. And for them, they saw the ruler as nearly divine. Now, mind you, that was back in the time when it was a monarch, uh, a monarchy-like system. Right. But however, they saw their government, the regime. As something that was divine, something that was given by God, similar to the Europeans' view of but, the divine and, and the, right. but, the philosophy but Nicholas, continues to but, influence more modern. But thought. Nicholas, yes, they, they, China is a, a state-controlled society where religion is not allowed, or an idea in sort of a deity is not allowed. It's a yes. Ever however, since Chinese legalism has came around, which has been after what you're talking about, there's no basis of sort of the. No one believes that Xi Jinping is divine. No one believes you're right. that. No, 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 hold on, now, Preston. Now, now you can say. Now you can say that China believes it is. They are exceptional people. That their race is a superior race. There's two problems with that. A. Every single country and every single race believes that. Every single society has a term called barbarian, which means the other. They are uncivilized. We are the only civilized nation. Every country has that. Now, now that's what. That's basically the whole basis for imperialism, for the European imperialism. Now, B. 
can't remember B. <laughs> can't All right, no, let, let me, let me, you know, here's, uh, I want to explain I'm why he's bringing B this up. Bring because up. the thing no, is, no, 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 here's B. I got B. Let me get B. All right, get B. Get B. So B. The bees are going extinct. We got to save them. Man, I missed So B. There's a difference in believing that your race is superior. And when you compare them to Hitler, who believed his race was superior, so okay, so far you're so good, but who believes that because you're superior, that you have the right to systematically exterminate any other race who was other than yours. The Chinese are not doing that. No. The no Chi- the Chi- okay, the Chinese have killed more people than Hitler and Stalin combined. They've killed more Chinese between, people. Between the, yeah, but in, in, here's, here's what I was going to say is that the, the, there is a difference. I, I said cultural exceptionalism, not racial exceptionalism. China's, China believes that their people are superior based on culture, not based on race. So there is a difference. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it in terms you know, of, of how dangerous it could be and how ultra-nationalistic. But here's my point in bringing this up. That... You know, because yes, every every country has sort of this noble lie, this idea that they're superior, mm-hmm. but not every country has a government that embodies that. For no. example, you know, even in the United States, I mean, Trump is nationalist, but a he's not as ultra nationalist as she, and b, uh, you know, a lot of t- like you have a lot of liberals who are to a certain extent. I, I'm not sure I want to say anti-U.S. because that would be kind of untrue, but like sort of pro like basically this this idea that we need to like you know to, to have reparations for colonialism and stuff so a lot of other countries is more moderated with china is raw nationalism and here's my point in bringing this up relative to india because china is so nationalistic their government not necessarily their people as a whole but their mm-hmm. government would be the type to try to, to see that india as a potential economic threat and as a result use economic or military or both action to try to constrain the mm-hmm. ability of india to grow in the future because because they know that if they allow India to grow unimpeded, that China will not be able to be the primary power. Because that's that's essentially the goal of the Communist Party. They want to replace the United States, and they want to prevent anybody else from mm-hmm. replacing the United States instead of China. Now, I remember that, that I've, I remember reading a couple of articles that stated, I believe it was from The Diplomat and a couple of others, that they stated that the Indians already knew about this sort of thing happening ever since their relationship with right Pakistan. Back. Now, that is why they decided as of 2017, although this happened, there were talks about this back in 2007, mm-hmm. that they would create this dialogue or security group called the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which was imp- implement, which was brought in, introduced by Japan back in 2006, 2007-ish. But it eventually dissolved, partially because Australia backed out of it. But now, as of 2017, Australia, Japan, United States, and India have decided to revive this dialogue together, partially in response to China with its one by one road or string of pearls, which this is involving the naval bases, the string of pearls. Now, this could be an interesting way. Now, I would say that this... Is good for the United States if we're talking about keeping the Indians on our side, at least in the short mm-hmm. and midterm goals. Yeah. Now, long term, uh, well, that's in the long term. That's kind of hard to predict because yeah. we could say India could become a threat. I mean, there was that rivalry with the British and the Americans. I like bringing them up so much because that's the British were the original idea of what a global superpower was versus rising powers. Mm-hmm. And it presents a case where it's a foil to what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, in this situation, we would be the British Empire. 
and India would be the America, the young up-and-coming power that's, yep. that's going to soon take over the world. Perfect analogy. But for the British Empire, it worked out pretty well for them. Having yep. America become the world's leader, the world's power, we've actually helped, we've saved them twice. And At we, least. And, and we've sort of been able to guarantee that you know, even without an empire, they're still protected as if they still had the empire. Right, so and they're we're, still relatively we're well. A, we're a security guarantor, we're an economic guarantor, and man, what would the United Kingdom be if they didn't have the United States power backing them up? Probably mm. nothing. Scotland or, would probably be free. No, or, just you know, England would, I mean, they wouldn't be what they are today. England has... They wouldn't. They wouldn't even be in the U in the UN Security Council. England would be so. the 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 so, her royal highness would be royally fucked. That's what basically <laughs> what would happen. Oh man, that's we're man, sorry, that's, Queen. That's if, if you're listening, Queen, we, uh, we God do, God save you. We do love your dogs. Okay, yeah. they are very adorable. So, but but so to your credit, it's possible that India could be the next United States. And that they do believe in human rights and they do believe in human dignity and they will use their power for the benefit of mankind. Wait, I thought that, you were going to keep that on and, the whole night. Yeah, what are you doing? The night is over. No, it's not. It's still night time. time. No, it's still, still night time. time. It's sure. He's taking off the Mark Tippett's. No. <laughs> no. No. You can't do that. You can't do that. You got to, okay, at least keep it on until the podcast is over. It's already past the time. I should take it off. Yeah. What are you? What? This is my favorite Hilfiger shirt. Don't be making spontaneous. I love Hilfiger. Okay, that's okay. And live with the consequences of your actions, okay. Nick. So... Dang it. So basically, there is a possibility that India is a, is a going to be a good power and that we should encourage their rise because they're going to serve as uh, an auxiliary to us and our ability uh, to project power. I guess a bulwark would be our, a good work? A bulwark and our ability to sort of secure our interests and our interests are best secured with a powerful India. But that being said... But yeah, because I, I was going to say, to I argue from a realist we, perspective, would do, do you really want United States Whoa. success in foreign policy to be dependent on India? Because yeah, we, mu we, must, we must remember that even though the British Empire had it pretty good under the United States, there were instances where that was not always the case. Like, for example, I think, I think it Suez was the Suez, the Suez crisis. Oh, yeah, that's a very the, good The example. Suez crisis, basically the long and short of the Suez crisis was Britain could not project power without American permission. Do, right. we do we want that? Do we want a situation where the United States cannot project power without Indian permission? That right. is problematic. But, 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 but Preston, <clears throat> you're right. So we would need their permission in some areas, but it's not like they're actively trying to sort of violate our. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't depend on them specifically. That is true. In, in, in a way that, but so so so, what I wanted to get into is because I think we need to shift into the next gear of this conversation. What are the things that you guys think that we should be looking for? to prove that we are making the same mistake and India is on a path towards a, a situation where they are powerful, A, and B, we can't control them. I would say what you would want to look for is the like sort of like the, the military exercises with China and Russia, uh, more purchases of Russian military weapons, and sort of a, a sort of... I would say more outgoing of, nature. Of saying that what America does, we're not going to listen because we have our own interests. That shows you that they're not going to sort of play ball when we ask them to play ball. See, I would say more economic integration with China. Um, D, I would say you watch the rhetoric of their president. I think that's very important. You have to see what their president is saying. Right. 
you have to see what is the national line because like Preston said, right now there's really no evidence outside of like maybe strategic autonomy and some other things about a fundamental difference in worldview. So you need to watch for that to evolve as their power evolves. Mm -hmm. Watch their language right. evolve. Yeah, yeah because, because, because countries can change oh, yeah. similar to how countries change. And I, I totally agree with that, that what it is is that like one of the things I had mentioned is that part of the problem with the United States foreign policy towards China is that is it was fro that it's frozen in time in a lot of ways or it was you know Trump has changed it obviously but what it is is that for the longest time we were acting as if Russia was still the preeminent Soviet th threat and China was a third world country and in reality that was not the case that's we need to avoid making the same mistake with India that just because India right now is a country we want to help and a country that's useful to balance in China does not mean that India will always be that and that let's say hypothetically let's imagine that the Chinese economy collapses and that they're no longer a threat mm -hmm. we would have to readjust right. our but, strategy towards well, India. Well I guess a good but, example but, but hold, hold, on, hold on Nick because I don't, I don't want to get off this, this so I'm giving lists about things that we need to watch for during the next maybe decade um, for to make sure that India is on the right path and, and because they're going to be powerful and because they're going to be, uh, you know, they might have different interests, they could potentially be an enemy. So another thing that we need to watch for is their military spending. We need to sort of monitor how yes. their military is growing. Where are they putting their military assets? Are they trying to sort of, because it's pretty obvious when they buy an S-400, to me, that sends a message that we have the ability to shoot down F-22s and F-35s, and we can... If you, yeah, because S-400 can kill they, stealth yeah. aircrafts. Well, I wouldn't go that far. No, they, they can, that, they can, but it's... Actually, I, I had a conversation with Dr. Inbody, yeah. and he's, he's way more confident in stealth than you are, Preston. He believes mm -hmm. that stealth cannot be detected the way that you think it can be detected. At least in um, its current form. And well, actually, said, well, the thing you're, you're so, well, you gotta over, well, and here's what I'm saying is that I'm but talking, that's a whole other I'm, conversation. No, no, I'm talking about specific because you mentioned S400. So the thing, the thing with stealth is that. First of all, it can be detected at closer distances, and then second of all, you, one thing that people often overlook are passive emissions. That basically, a lot of times, like the early stealth aircraft that are designed only for bombing, would not mm. have radar on, or if they did, it'd be weaker or something like that. A lot of radars, they ha a lot of fighter jets, they have like the targeting radar. It's similar to harm missiles. You can home in on that. But you're right; that's a topic for a different discussion. But yeah. My point, my point is though, is that. You know, with the S-400, the S-400 is actually able to detect and target stealth aircraft. Whether or not that can actually shoot it down maybe is a good point for debate. Yep. But 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 the S-400, what makes it unique and what makes it better compared to a lot of other missile defense systems is its capability against stealth aircraft, is the fact that stealth aircraft are not invulnerable against the S-400 like they are against some older is it, systems. Is it, is it possible for S-400s to strike down stealth aircraft? Yes. But does it render stealth air aircraft ineffective? Well, no, that, but that's... That's, that's, those but, are two different questions. Yeah, yeah, yes, but those are still two fundamentally. If your if your capability is not ineffective, like a stealth aircraft will always be harder to detect than a non-stealth. But you can still have situations where both will be shot down easily. Well, that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. But it's in in this situation, I would disagree. But that's a whole other topic for another situation. But we're talking about sort of things that you should look for in India's sort of foreign policy. Another thing that I would say is very very important is sort of the nature and the spirit of their agreements with our adversaries. That's something that you need to look at that's very concrete that we can point to in saying, well, look, they're dealing with Iran. They're dealing with Venezuela. They're dealing with North Korea. They're dealing with Russia. They're dealing with China and all of our other enemies. And that's something that we should be looking out for. If there's an increase in the volume of trade agreements or just sort of geopolitical agreements with our adversaries, 
we need to be worried about that. And after that, I would just say we monitor their culture. We monitor the videos, the music, and make sure that there's not much anti-American, pro-Russian and China rhetoric. And other than that, that's all I got. What sort of things that you guys think we should be looking out for from India to confirm our, our suspicions that they may be on a path beyond our control. Well, one thing I would definitely say is mercantilism because that's been the key to China's mm -hmm. success is mercantilism. I think that India, if they're willing to adopt free markets and international trade, that's a sign that they're willing to uphold a liberal world order, that they support interconnectedness, that they don't have a lot of unilateral aggression because they're willing to be interdependent enough with the rest of the world where they're going to be dependent on us to provide key resources for their economy and where they recognize that if they were to go to war it would be economically um, detrimental to them so I would definitely watch for mercantilism because that, that that's what I just explained is under a free market if, if India starts moving towards efforts to become economically self-sufficient mm -hmm. if India starts moving towards efforts to to prepare its economy for war as China has because China's done both that they've, yeah. they've, they've militarized their economy and they've also become a lot more self-sufficient those would definitely both be indicators to watch out for. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that you know we need to definitely prioritize free trade agreements with India. You know, getting yep. them to lower tariffs, and if we have to lower if tariffs, that, if, if if we have to lower tariffs, that's fine. We just want to mm -hmm. get them to lower their tariffs, and we want them to be reciprocal. That right. free free trade is the goal with India in a lot of ways oh, because yeah. that maintains the, their interdependence on us. And since they're democratic, they're more likely to embrace free trade. But that's, the point is, the the, point, the point is, the point is that if, if India. Starts getting Let's nuke India. It, no, oh gosh, if, if the, the, the point the, the point is like if India starts getting mercantilist especially if they're mercantilists in the face of alternatives. So let's say that we offer them a free trade deal. We say, you know, you get rid of all your tariffs, we'll get rid of all of ours. If they reject that, and then they reject that in favor of a more mercantilist agreement that would give them lopsided advantages, that's a red flag that they have major ambitions to become a world power at the expense of the United States. Because if they want to coexist with the United States and share power, Free trade is going to be great for them. But if they want to take over the world or if they want to be the world's hegemon, then they don't want free trade. They want mercantilism. Hmm. I would say at least two different – two things. One's going to probably going to be the most obvious, but then the other one's going to be a little more interesting. The first one would be more like their movements, what they have been doing in terms of military or even economic. What I'm saying is when they start acting out in the theaters around them. The Indian Ocean, for instance, say anti-piracy. They start getting more active in there. We could say maybe, like what Preston said earlier, with mercantilism, when they start getting involved in a mercantilist fashion with their neighboring states, nations like uh, Burma, Thailand, Bangladesh, or predominantly Eastern Africa. That would be an interesting way to look at. Now, the last, the second one would be more like an indicator to start watching the Indians for what they do. And what I'm saying is probably going to be one of the few limiters that the Indians have, besides their corruption, obviously. It would be their caste system. Their caste system still exists. Mind you, it's weaker than what it used to be, but it's been part of their culture for so long, it is still very it's, much ingrained. It's still a basis for mass discrimination. Yeah. It's still a massive one. So we'll have to watch that. 
see the progress in that. Once we start seeing that, because my, like I said before, I this is a limiter. We need to have a human rights podcast. We do. This we is need a to limiter. have a human rights podcast. Like, like this is what I'm saying. It's a limiter. It's restricting them. It's holding them back. Once you see that, either at least half of it gone, or when it's nearly non-existent or insignificant, that's when you should start watching what the Indians are doing. Because this is just something that's keeping them occupied. Once it's gone, they can do more. You see, guy, where you see where I'm coming from at this? Yeah, that's Jordan, what are you doing? <laughs> Nick's dropping the fucking heat, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's dropping the fucking heat. You're making me mad that I missed what you're talking about. Right? <laughs> we're all getting tired. Yeah. So I, I think we're, we're all we're all getting tired at this point. So I do want to move on to the second segment of the co- the podcast. Uh, we're barely under. Yeah.